that was Meffy with Feels Like Real Leather, local band. You can catch them around often. Um, before that was uh, One Self, Children of Possibility. Um, the song was entitled Overexposed. Before that, Steve Roll with Guitar Town, Come On Feel the Illinois by Sufjan Stevens, Wilco with Camera, The Talking Heads with a live version of Don't Worry About the Government, and we started that off with Godzuki doing Auto Haze. Uh, this is Gorov, and we are all done. I hope you enjoyed the last two and a half hours and the two hours of Max before that and whatever the hell was before that. Um, I'm going to go get a beer with Munin, and hopefully... You have enjoyed and will stay tuned for the Living Writers Show, which is going to start right about now here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor 88.3. listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. This is the Living Writers Show. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is poet Lorna Goodison. Her work has been widely anthologized, recognized internationally, and translated into several languages. Her publications include eight books of poetry, among them the most recent book, which we'll be talking about today, Controlling the Silver, also Turn Thanks to Us, All Flowers Are Roses, and Traveling Mercies. Also, she's published a collection of short stories, and numerous publications have appeared in journals and magazines. Lorna Gittison's many awards include the Commonwealth Poetry Prize for the Americas Region, the Musgrave Gold Medal from the Institute of Jamaica, and the Henry Russell Award from the University of Michigan. A native of Jamaica, she teaches at the University of Michigan and holds joint appointments in the Department of English and the Center for Afro-American and African Studies. Welcome. It's really wonderful to have you today. It's very nice of you to invite me here today, Ashley. Such a pleasure. Um, I was saying just before the interview began that this is a particular treat for me because you've been my teacher, and now um, I get to actually sort of put you in the hot seat and talk about all the things (laughs) I was too shy to ask when I was sitting in your classroom. Well, um, as we usually do, we start the show off with a reading, and so I'm wondering if you would read for us from your newest book, Controlling the Silver. Lessons learned from the royal primer. Taught us how Bombo lived in the Congo in a round grass hut. Bombo was the boy who sported a white cloth about his loins, causing one of our linguists to conjecture that perhaps Bombo's rough garment gave its name to one of Jamaica's curse cloths. Now, we were never told exactly what that little boy Bombo was doing, except just dwelling as a dark Congolese native in his Rome domed glass ancestral hut, supported by a thorny center pole. But what the royal primer forgot to tell us was this. It seemed that it was the king of Belgium who gave strict instructions to his soldiers to cleanly chop off both of the little boy Bombo's hands, on account of the fact that balls of rubber cultivated by Bombo were deemed too lightweight and not enough for the needs of Leopold. Mm. 
Thank you very much. Now, your work is rooted in Jamaica, your home, but it just sort of covers the the, the planet and moves from um, intimate family settings and out into the world into sort of big discursive sorts of themes. And I wonder if you you started out as a painter. In fact, the cover of, of Controlling the Silver is one of your paintings. Mm-hmm. The cover of co- all your all, books, all my books yes. are, are, are your paintings. Mm-hmm. You started out as a painter, um, and you were telling me before the interview about your, your first painting. Do you remember your first poem? I think so. I think it had to do with, with rain, and I still write many poems about rain. And as you would appreciate, rain in the Caribbean is not viewed in the same way as we view rain here. A lot of your blue songs always have some line in there about, oh, it's so blue, my love is gone, it's raining. Pathetic fallacy, you know. But in the Caribbean, certainly when it rains, it's a wonderful thing because, you know, usually farmers are happy when it rains. You know, the landscape is refreshed after rain. So I, I became very aware of the fact that after the rain had fallen in Jamaica, things looked so much better. And I think regeneration is something. I didn't know then that I was fascinated by the idea of regeneration. Uh, But I think it's something that has continued to appear again and again in my work, the idea of being refreshed by showers of blessings, if you will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the books in which your poetry is anthologized is the Vintage Book of Contemporary World Poetry. And in the biographical note that introduces your work there, um, you're quoted as having said that you've borne witness to the experiences of women in Jamaica and indeed throughout the West Indies and to the heritage of struggle and resistance, of patience and fortitude and independence, which has been an important part of the history of my people since the dislocations and dispossessions of, si- of slavery. Um, so that Did I really say that? Okay. Well, it's, in, it's, it's in quotes. <laughs> okay, Someone's fine. attributed it to you. Um, and uh, I thought that would be sort of a good way to frame the, the talk today, and, uh, particularly in light of this, this notion of regeneration that you've um, mentioned with the rain. Um, there's a lot of um, sort of telling a story, telling it like it is, and then finding the strength and um, finding, not being afraid to name something, but um, but also finding a healing moment in that. Yes. And yes. this poem you just read, would you talk a little bit about how you think about those questions? That the well, the background is, 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 I'll be very brief. When I went to primary school in Jamaica, what we called primary school, we had a book in which we were introduced to children from all over the world. And one of the children in this book was a little boy called Bamba, who was from the Congo. And we had Herfa from Egypt. And we had Tuktu, who was an Eskimo, not Inuit then. And it just said that Bamba lived in the Congo in a grass hut. But in retrospect, and I mean many years later when I'm, I thought about that book, just about the time that that book was published and given to us to read, in the Belgian Congo, it is true people's hands were being cut off for not meeting their quota of rubber. You, you know that or those really awful stories. And um, this seemed to me just an opportunity to speak about that particular thing and put the whole idea of Bombo in, in context, you know. And I, I hope I'm, I'm not. And I, I hope I'm not saying any more than I need to say in this piece. You know, I'm just 
Um, well, okay. What what else can I say? <laughs> well, there's a there's a fine line to walk between sort of hitting someone over the head with a message and creating something that's that's art and that's that's poetry that speaks for itself. Um, is that something that you think about, kind of after the fact? Do you go for a message, or um, do you go for a a particular music or rhythm or story, and mm-hmm. then there happens to be a message in that? I, I I have at different times I've done different kinds of work and at some stage of my life I used to work for the Jamaica Information Service and that meant I did a lot of public education campaigns you know on energy conservation or you know just all sorts of things like that and I became aware actually I became a little worried that that tone that public education tone would creep into my work. Mm. So I worked very hard to separate my my poems from that kind of writing. So I think if anything I hesitate, I, I pull I hold back a little in a poem like this. I, I do not want to, as you say, beat people over the head or or as Eduardo Galliano says, to speak to your audience as if they were hard of hearing. Yes. <laughs> yes. Although sometimes it seems that the audience is indeed hard of hearing. <laughs> um, you're coming from Jamaica, and you've um, you split your time now between Jamaica and um, Michigan and Toronto. Are those the sort of places where you're mo- in New York too? Or? No, I was. I went to art school in New York for a while, the School of the Art Students League on West 57th Street. Do you know New York? I do. <laughs> yes. I, uh, my first so right. grad degree was over that way. <laughs> sure, okay, over by Carnegie Hall, yeah. So I spent some time there, and I, I do have... No, I, I don't have any real attachments in New York now, but I have lived in different places. I, you know, I lived for a while. I, I've done a lot of work in England, for example. You know, I do lots of readings there. And um, I lived in Germany for a little bit. I was once at a Bunting Institute at Radcliffe in, in Cambridge for a year. So I've moved about a fair bit, you know. Do you um, feel a certain responsibility to home, to Jamaica, and in in telling your poem and writing your poems and, and writing your stories? Do you, or do you find that other people sort of hold you up? And I mean, you've now in the with the publication of your most recent book, Controlling the Silver. I believe it was Kwame Dawes who said that you've now become part of the um, the trinity of Caribbean writing, Walcott, Brethwaite, and Goodison. Um, is that <laughs> a, a lot of weight on your shoulders, or is that something that um, people can kind of say and you just do your work? It, it was wonderful of Kwame to say that. And one or two other people have attempted to put me in that great company, you know. And I, I'm extremely, you know, honored to be placed there. But I... Try not to think too hard about things like that. I think it's dangerous. You were I, telling me about your mother. <laughs> oh, I, shall I tell that story? Please no, do, that's a what great I was one. yes, I was just saying. I always go back to a memory I have of my mother. Who, whenever I would go to her, you know, my mother died about eleven years ago. But when I would go to her, and I'd say, you know, I'm going off to do a reading in Paris or in London or somewhere like that. You know, and she would say, "That's very nice, dear. No, you just go and be yourself." And I tell myself that because she's not al- no longer around to tell me that. Whenever I'm doing anything, I always say, "Okay, dear, go off and be yourself." I want to remain as much as is possible myself. 
And is that a, a very sort of internal thing, or when you think of, do you think of yourself as someone of the diaspora or someone of Jamaica or um, Lorna, you know, outside these kind mm. of lines that get drawn when people talk about identities mm. in academic contexts? I certainly owe, you know, my, my I, I think about my, I think of myself as a Jamaican, certainly, I certainly do, and I, w- I always will. But I also think of myself as being a citizen of the world. I, do, I don't use those ter- particular terms, but I certainly see myself as being a citizen of Ann Arbor now. I've been here, I think, long enough. And I, you know, my husband is Canadian, and I have many, fam- you know, I have my, my family ties to Canada go back almost 70 years. My mother's sisters went to Montreal in 1920, so I do have strong ties in, in that part of the world as well. And I just try to be where I am, wherever it is I'm put down. I just, as much as is possible, I try to live there. And it's true, I have the lovely people in Arbor, people I, you know, I really will, I, I am very close to, and I've made these these friendships, and they're very valuable to me, so I'm, I'm just where I am now. <laughs> does yeah. that answer your question? It does, and it, it reminds me of something you told me, I think, about a year ago about, um, this story is very similar for many Jamaicans, this kind of relationship between Canada in particular and, and Jamaica, that um, families, different parts of families will be there and sort of go right. back and forth. So um, one of your poems in um, Controlling the Silver, Hard Food, um, <laughs> talks about how you bring bring home to ca- from Jamaica to home in Canada. Um, and maybe if we can, would you mind reading that one? Sure. I, 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 it's a poem about my mother and... Um, I have to find it. But it is true. This is, you know, my mother would go to visit her sisters in Montreal. And she was a very lovely lady, and she would get all dressed up, but she would insist on carrying Jamaican food with her, (laughs) you know. And the poem is called Hard Food. Decked in her finery, Doris would transport every species of provender, opting to jettison her own garments when the scales registered outrage, scandalized, horrendous overweight, not one finger of green banana surrendered. She journeyed to see her sisters Rose and Anne, her suitcases fat with the food of their Hanover childhood. In advance, she'd hunt and gather Lucy white and yellow yams, sweet potatoes and cassava, green Bombay and Julie mangoes, Sheathed in the obituary pages of newspapers, they landed ripe, fit for sucked dry endings. So they read, they ate, sure of finding at least one soul known to them in the death columns. Sia Duhaini dead here, she must be related to Grandmother Nana. Bliss is a ripe Julie mango. Wear pimento grains in your socks for heat. Mama, Where you get that kind of foolishness? She never said. My mother, possessor of esoteric information, boss of things strange and arcane, packed sugarcane next to aloes and tamarind, foil-wrapped escovitch fish like silver slippers. When I land, I'll cook for them. We will feast whole night till morning. And I'm on my way to Calgary with a bag of hard food. My mother, I've become you. Thank you. 
There's such beautiful music in that, and I know you listen to a lot of music. Um, mm-hmm. We started the show today with um, Yo-Yo Ma, and when we break in just a minute, we'll listen to a little Coltrane, which is what you've been listening to a lot lately. Yes. Um, does music, do you hear a separate music when you're writing your poems, or does the music that you're listening to um, at the time make its way into the language that you use? Is there a relationship there? Music is very, very important to me. My father was a natural musician. He used to pl- he would play the guitar. My mother played a little the piano, some too, but the really big musical influence in my life is I have, a, I have six brothers. I'm one of nine children, and one of my six brothers hosts a radio show in Jamaica where he plays jazz and rhythm and blues for about two hours every Sunday afternoon. And I grew up in a house where we listened to music all the time, in partic- jazz in particular. I remember the first time I ever heard Miles Davis and how compelling that was. I, I, t- I named my son Miles because Miles Davis is such an important <laughs> person in my life, you know, an important influence on my work. So I, I listened to a lot of music, and but I think more than that, I I like the idea of the relationship, the close relationship between poetry and music. And I tend to favor poems that are have some kind of music in them. You know, it, it doesn't have to be, you know, mel- you know, s- sort of strict, strictly melodic or, you know, met music as, you know, it, it can be jazz-like. It can have all sorts of interpretive, strange you know, pauses and beats and holds. And I, I like all of that idea of music in a poem. I really do, you know. Well, we'll listen to a little bit of music that you brought in for us. This is a little bit of John Coltrane, and then we'll be right back. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is poet Lorna Goodison. We'll be right back. tuned in to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. This is The Living Writers Show. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is poet Lorna Goodison. We're talking predominantly about her newest book, Controlling the Silver. Well, would you read a little bit more for us from the book? So who was the mother of Jamaican art? She was the first nameless woman who created images of her children sold away from her. She suspended those wood babies from a rope round her neck. Before she ate, she fed them, 
touch bits of pounded yam and plantains to seal lips. Always urge them to sip water. She carved them of heartwood. Teeth and nails were her first tools. Later she wielded a blunt blade. Her spit-cleaned face and limbs, the pitch oil of her skin burnished. When the woodworms bored into their bellies, she warmed castor oil and they purged. She learned her art by breaking hard rock stones. She did not sign her work. There's a little bit of a backstory to this poem, which I, I would like to just mention. It's I, I was I'm always very disturbed when I read this poem because the story behind this is that apparently some enslaved women, when they had children who were sold away from them, would do these little carvings which represented the babies and hang them around their necks and then, you know, feed them, symbolically offer them some food or water before they ate. And um, that that's, that's a very difficult thing to think about. And when I read about it, I had to shape it into a poem like this, you know. But um, that's a story. And um, it also has something to do with my attempts to restore through my poems in some small way the humanity of people who are often regarded as being less than human. And that's something that I've read that you do not only in the crafting of your poems, but um, you are not someone who stays in the ivory tower. You've been, you read in, in schools and um, mm-hmm. in uh, prisons, and you've, you've done a lot of um, bringing poetry to contexts that are not necessarily thought of as poetry fora. Is that fair I've, to say? I've done some, yes, I, I mean, I've read in the hospital in which I was born. That was kind of nice to be able to read to the nurses and the people were in the hospital where I was born. And um, yes, I've read in different places like that. And there, there's so much going on in the in this poem that you just read. I mean, the, the story is just a... I don't even have an adjective. It's that kind of, it's, it's, it is. It's just. Hard. Very hard, it's a. Yeah. It's a really difficult story to even talk about. And then you've taken it, and we spoke a little bit about music in your poetry just before the break. Um, and in this particular poem, we could talk about that, but then we can also um, talk about one of the other elements that's so um, dominant in your poems as as one of the strengths is the way you use image. Um, the way those the the, sp- the precision and the specific ways you've chosen to tell that story um, can carry a reader along. It's carried me along, and I can just sort of read this beautiful artifact of poem, um, and then I'm like, oh my goodness, and this is about this horrible story, mm-hmm. um, and lay those two things together. So there's a layering of effects, um, this music and image and historical context that creates um, sort of a trinity of effect, um, if you will. And you use metaphor in your in your stories, too. You tell stories about your family um, or use members from your family to tell them. Mm-hmm. But the layering goes back to um, history often. His- yes, invariably. I'm, I, always, I often say that I, I do history from below. I, I really was at one point going to study history in a formal way, but I ended up doing history from below through these poems because I, I'm fascinated by things which do not appear in the history book well, well certainly history book in the Caribbean but which 
I think belong in some sort of history book. So I end up, I ended up putting some of these things in my poems. I have a number of things like that which I learned from being in the field, if you will, because of different types of work I've done, where I've met very fascinating people who told me these stories that were so, you know, unusual, and I ended up putting them in into my poems. Do these stories that are not in the history books come to you through conversations you have with people? Very often, yes. And are they sort of casual collecting you? By happenstance, they arrive in your, (laughs) in front (laughs) of you, or do you go and... Well, okay, I've I've done some work in radio, and I've done, I used to produce documentaries in Jamaica. You know, not a lot, but some. And because I was doing this kind of work, I used to work... Um, as a cultural administrator for a while. So I would go out to speak to somebody about who was, you know, doing a particular kind of dance that you wanted to make sure didn't disappear. And in speaking to this person, they would, you know, just tell you these amazing things, you know. And So that is where some of my material comes from, from field work. Right. Yeah. It, and are those stories disappearing? I mean, is there a certain point when the, the kinds of stories that you've been collecting that are not in the history books are kind of going to be gone and there's a contemporary? <laughs> do you know, is uh, that do kind of a funny question? Because, of course, history is always going and people are... <laughs> but yeah. Well, I, I just, I'm sure there are other people doing what I, I was doing, and I'm hoping they're doing the same thing. I just want to, honestly, this is an admission now. What I'm aiming to do in my work is to put in as much of these stories and remedies as far as I'm, I, I'm going to call them that, little, you know, little remedies, you know, for brokenness in these poems. I'm hiding them there, and I hope the people who need them will find them. Right, right, wonderful. Well, and they've been described as um, praise songs and elegies. Um mm-hmm. Does that fit for you with this notion of remedy? Oh, yes. I'm I'm fascinated by the form of praise songs, and I've been fortunate enough to go to South Africa, Southern Africa th- on three occasions to, to read poetry. And, um, you know, they, they have those wonderful praise singers, you know, these people who just praise a man, a king, or something for days and days on end. Or, or I'm exaggerating here a bit, but long, wonderful, extemporaneous lovely songs of praise to, to a subject and I like the idea of that because I think my f- one of my very first poems uh, after the rain poem I remember wanting to write a poem for my mother and it was in fact inspired by you know I just thought she, she somebody should praise her she has the capacity to care for, for huge amounts of people. My mother had nine children, but she operated under some, you know, she, she, on some, some strange sort of, I don't know, mystical mathematics that she believed in that said if you could feed nine children, you could just as easily feed ten, 15 or 16. So we always had other people's children in our house in addition to, you know, there were lots of us. <laughs> and she just thought that that was a good thing to do. And uh, I felt compelled to praise her, and um, that is that was the, the, the you know the impetus. You know, I just needed to to, to praise her, and I didn't know I was writing pra- a praise song, but that is what I wanted to do. We've talked a little bit about um, in the past about artistic expression in Africa and the ways in which, um, for example. Um, 
African dance wouldn't just be the dance; it would be mm-hmm. dance and drumming and maybe song, and and that wouldn't be um, the the genre wouldn't have, wouldn't be divided up no, into no. poetry and music and um, movement the way they tend to be divided up here in the U.S. Do you find when you're writing your work that there's a translation issue? If you do, you, <laughs> do you ever conceive of your work as as not just on the page and then have some sort of um, magic you have to do to get it so that it is just <laughs> on the page? No, I, honestly, no. I think when I'm putting these my poems together, I I tend to not think about anything much outside of the poems, you know, except the the act of just putting them together. And sometimes I really think about it in making a poem. I have a friend who is a very a wonderful painter, but he, I remember he always talked about making a drawing. And I, I like to think about making a poem in the same way you make a, a piece of furniture or something. That's just, you know, fitting things together, joints. And, and I think I learned in many ways to write poems or to put poems together from my mother who was a dressmaker, you know, sewing seams. I always tell my students, remember, test the seams. The seams will hold up, you know. And so it's very much that kind of relationship that I have with the poem, you know, when I'm making it. So I honestly can say I do not spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, whether it's, you know, working along with a song or music or art. or I just make it and then I step away from it. And if I'm really lucky, I think, no, where did that come from? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so there is this kind of conscious effort, and then the the, the moment of surprise when it arrives, and it and when it's all done, and it's yeah. where it where that is. Mm. I know some people talk about. Um, I, this is an example I use often because it, it obviously struck me as quite interesting. Last year, when the poet Paul Muldoon was in town, mm-hmm. um, in a workshop, he said, "You have to think about the architecture of a poem. If you're sure. going to put a beam over there, then you need a beam over." On a stress side, beam, yeah. a bearing beam. beam. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yes. So when you do you write there, some of your your papers are now in um, your manuscripts are in Toronto. Yes. Um, and some of the wonderful things about that is that there are loads of notebooks, so we can sort of see how things evolve. Mm-hmm. Do you just get ideas out and then um, shape them? by thinking about things like stress beams and, and, and or a dress pattern and putting it together, um, are you thinking about how music... Is there a system that you go through? Okay. Or <laughs> I, mean, I don't want you to have to dissect your, no, your creative no, impulse. But no, Honestly, I'd, okay, I'll, let me tell you about the thing I'm almost finished with, the latest poem I've been laboring over. Two years ago, I was doing some research at the Institute of Jamaica Library because every time I go to Jamaica, I, you know, I, I read things and because, you know, as I'm, I'm his, the whole business of Jamaican history is very important to my work. And I was going through a file and I came across this marvelous, you know, it was, it, what was it? How can I say it? It was an account by a man who had learned five trades from a man whose name was Casimir. And he was just full of praise for this man and admiration for the fact that he could do so many things and do them well. And I photocopied it and I've been reading it and looking at it. And I'm, I've, I've started, I've, I think I'm finished with them. But it's a whole story. The, the, the story began because he, as a small boy, 
saw a carriage that this man had renovated and he was just he stood in there's a he stood in his sh- bare he had no shoes on so he just stood there and wondered at the fact that this man could transform something that was old and broken into something so beautiful and he decided as a small boy to follow this man back to Kingston he walked behind him all his miles just to be able to learn to do something well and that is something i'm very very taken with the idea of just doing even one thing really 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 well and that's what i'm working on now and that well it began with reading that that account from a newspaper about that was over 100 years ago somebody you know took this account from this old man about seeing this his master as he called him who could do these things so well he could make cakes he could renovate carriages he he made fireworks he he was just this, um, he made sweets he was just this very skilled man and um so i i i i have to i read that and i just became fascinated by the man so i kept seeing him i kept imagining him I, and this 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 has been going on for 2 years and i think i finally finished with the cycle of poems which came out of them but i i for the past 2 years i've been thinking about this man quite a bit you know i've lived with him I, I try to imagine what he would look like how how he would speak you know and how people would react to him and that is how i do it does that answer your question at that all does, yes. <laughs> thank you very much and we're going to take a short break and then we'll be right back you're listening to the living writers show on wcbn fm ann arbor my name is ashley david my guest today is lorna goodison and we'll be right back Once upon a time, just like in a nursery rhyme before city turns wine. Me did wear for me fear, but me feels like a shield, like a mask. And everybody takes me cool and deadly. Nothing could have said would have been take it off. And if you get me nervous, I would have just laughed it off. And everybody takes me cool and deadly. But not so long ago, just like in a picture show with you're tuned in to The Living Writers Show on WCBN. My guest today is Lorna Goodison, and we're talking about um, her work and how she works and um, about her mo- particularly about her most recent book, Controlling the Silver. The music that was just playing was Linton Crazy Johnson, who's mm-hmm. going to be in town soon as well yes, to read yes. here. Um, and as a friend of yours... Oh, yes, Linton is my friend, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and... Um, so hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to him later on the show as well. But I wonder if you'll read two poems now. This the 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 one I'm going to ask you to read first is the Road of the Dread, mm-hmm. um, which is compiled in the Vintage Book of Contemporary Poetry. But that was in which book did that come out in? In my very first collection, which is called Tamarind Season. This is one, perhaps the only poem that I have written, which is almost completely written in Jamaican Creole. The road of the dread, that the road no pave like any other black face road, it no have no definite color, and it fence two side with live barbed wire, and a look for no milepost to measure your walking, and a tetanus stone as dead or familiar, for sometime you pass a thing no as, call it stone again, and is a snake ready for squeeze you, kill you, or is a dead man taking possession, steeze you. 
then the place them you feel is resting place because time before that you welcome like rain, go there again. Bad dog, bad face, turn for drive you underground where you not have no light for walk. And you find so that many of me who said them understand is only from the mouth them talk. One good thing though, that same treatment make you walk untold distance. For to continue, you have to walk far away from the wicked. Upon the same road, your sister, sometimes you drink your salt sweat for water. For you sure say at least that no poison. And bread, you picture it and chew it accordingly. And sometimes you're surprised to know how that full man belly. Some day I have no definite color, no beginning and no ending. It just named day or night as how you feel for call it. Then why I tread it, brother? Well, make I tell you about the day then when the father sent some little bird that swallowed flute for trill me, and when him instruct the sun for smile upon me first, and the sky calm like sea when it sleep, and a breeze like a laugh follow me, or the man find a stream that pure like a baby mind, and the water ease down your throat, and quiet you inside. And better still, when you meet another traveler, who have flour and you have water, and man and man make bread together, and them time there the road just runs straight and sure like a young horse that can't tire, and you catch a glimpse of the end through the water in your eye. And I won't tell you what I spy, but it's for that alone I tread this road. Thank you very much. Now, you mentioned before you read it that that's perhaps the only poem you've written that's in Jamaican Completely Creole. Completely I, I code switch, as you may notice. I, yes. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if you'll read, um, I saw Charles Mingus from sure. Controlling the Silver, and then we'll talk about sort of those different strategies. Sure. I saw Charles Mingus. There went Mingus, high as he was wide, moving stately galleon up Fifth Avenue, Tall Valkyrie blonde woman heart side, they changed sides, crossed over on approaching the new school. It was cold. How did I see Charles Mingus pass? I cashiered at Rugoff's Fifth Avenue between 12th and 13th Street after classes at the Art Students League. One extra A train token busted my budget. But you don't want to hear that. To you, I'm an island upstart, allowed in through the trade per- tradesperson's entrance. True that. But point is, I did see Mingus walking. As I cashiered, Master Akira Kurosawa reeled. You kind of code switch there, too. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Kurosawa to Mingus to um, yeah. back to home to the A-train in New York City. Um, how do you... It, when you make the choice to write in Jamaican Creole or to pull the elements together, um, is do you think about a particular audience um, no. or have an audience in mind? No, absolutely not. I'm just trying to be faithful to the subject and what it is or who it is that is calling, occupying me at that moment, you know. For example, The Road of the Dread was inspired by a young Rastafarian I know who had come from a middle class home and just because of his religious beliefs was teaching in the 
Kingston inner cities in in the inner city in a very 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 you know sort of hard place where he he had given up a lot of creature comforts to be able to do this to 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 be true to his beliefs and some of the things that are said in that poem are you know things he said to me about just choosing a particular path and you know knowing that it would be difficult and lonely very lonely and um why he couldn't divulge why he had done it because somewhere he had been promised that somewhere at the end of it there was going to be something that was even too lovely to try to describe you know so that was what that was about you know and um there's a moment of a loneliness perhaps in this other poem that you read um i saw charles mingus sure um the <laughs> to you i'm just a oh the speaker yes yeah actually you know i, I don't want to elaborate but that you know sometimes i've i've had that you know i don't want to go on about that but i've had that people think oh, oh you know you're from jamaica you're you know how can you talk about charles mingus except that you know i, I did see him <laughs> it was a, it was in response to a response that I got about you know a discussion on Mingus and I piped in and somebody sort of yeah what do you know about Mingus you know anyway that was that <laughs> <laughs> sometimes as Bob Marley say, said you know these things happen and you get a song or a poem from them there you go there you go. <laughs> You um, quote a lot of people. I mean, you quoted to me over the last year and a half. Um, mm. You told me once, I believe it was Yeats, who quoted and say in talking about give the poet a, a mask or a persona. Oh yeah, uh, he or she will speak. Yes, will speak. And you've quoted Marley to me that wire fences. Oh yeah, I like that one. You know, Bob Marley said that Ja never run no wire fence, and it, it's again in that kind of response. So who are you to be commenting on this or that thing? I think he meant, you know, you, you, sh- you know, what he's saying is that there are no divisions. You know, those are divisions like that are man-made or made by humans, not not by the divine. Gosh, I hate to sort of follow up that with another question. <laughs> it's such a wonderful sentence, but I do have one little question. Then, um, what's what's sort of? I mean, there is. I, I hate to ask what's next because they're sort of ongoing. I I, I don't ever see you um, sitting idle. But um, you just mentioned that you're finishing up a. A, a series about this man who could do so much. Yes. Um, um, are you working on another book? or? Well, I, I do have one or two things. Usually I work on things for very long, for years and years, and then at some point, hopefully they happen, you know, they 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 become books or or they don't. So, yes, I, I, I'm hoping to finish a book or two in the next short while, you know. And you're giving a reading. Um, well, you're giving a reading every time I turn around. You're you're off <laughs> somewhere, but you're giving a reading in the area, um, in on March 30th, is it? Really, where am I? In uh, with you and and Laura Kashishki are reading on. Oh right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> As I, part I, of the Zell Zell series. Yes, I I think I'm supposed to be doing that. Yes, yeah. yes. And that will be so. Um, y'all check out the posters, which will be up. I don't think that the location's been determined yet, but that'll be at the no. usual five o'clock slot on March. 30th, and uh, you teach here in the Center for um, Afro-American and African Studies. Yes, I do. And in the Department of English. Yes, and I, I, I think I'm very fortunate to be able to do this. I really am. I'm very, very great. I really am very grateful to be able to meet. I, I mean, I think I'm just lucky to be in meeting students. Well, like you, for example, is, is you know, is wonderful. Thanks. Well, no, thank you. <laughs> really, the pleasure is all mine and everyone else who studies with you. Um, 
so we will wrap up the show in just a minute. But if we've asked you, I've, we've talked a little bit about your the, some of the music that's in your life, and I wonder, um, literature is really important to you, obviously, not only as one who writes it, but as one who reads. And mm-hmm. um, you said there's one great thing about um, being from the former colonies. You have this whole British literature, too. Oh, yes. It was, I don't know why, you know, I don't think it was a problem. I, I like the idea that I was... Well, okay, I think one of the reasons I became a poet was I, you know, you push back against being given the daffodils. I wandered lonely as a cloud, which is one of the first poems I was ever made to memorize. And I I know I love that poem, but I remember as a child memorizing it and, you know, saying it. And in the middle of saying it once, just thinking to myself, what is a daffodil? Because daffodils don't really grow in Jamaica, except maybe way up in the Blue, Blue Mountains, which go, they go as high as 7,000 feet. But normally most of us have no idea what a daffodil looks like. So I always say that that poem annoyed me into becoming a poet. You know, so it was a good thing. <laughs> it <was laughs> it's a good thing to have something to rub up against. Right, well, exactly. That, that's, a, that's a good bit of advice and a good, uh, an advice by example for all of us out there writing. Well, thank you so much, Lorna, for joining me today. It's been a true pleasure um, to have you on the show. Thank you. And I'd also like to thank our engineer, Chaz Barrett, for doing a wonderful job um, behind the scenes every week. The show will go on next week as well, um, and every Wednesday from 4.30 to 5.15, The Living Writer Show airs on WCBN, and for the rest of the 24-hour schedule, 